0: Oh, boom, we are live. Oh my gosh, what an absolute cluster. Jesus, goodness gracious. Well, everybody, those of you who have been waiting so patiently to watch this, thank you for hanging out. We are exactly 13 minutes late because our traditional platform, Blab, is in all kinds of disarray. I can't log in. New users can't sign up, at least some of them can't. So if I can't log in, I can't operate from Blab. Kiki can't log in. So I don't know what to say. So we had to, at the last minute, switch to Google Hangouts. And then in an effort to update my El Capitan, my computer froze. And so I had to use Max. I mean, guys, this has been a cluster of an afternoon. But in, in the meantime, our boy Kean McLaughlin has been a stud in hanging on for us. So thank you very much for that, Kean. We really That's appreciate it. All right, folks, welcome to The Word with my ho- uh, co-host. Kiki. Kiki, what's up, sister?
1: Hello, hello. We uh, have a good show for you from all the way across the world.
0: That's right. My boy Kent, yes, he's in Australia, land down under in a Vegemite. I'm not even going to go into Vegemite because that (laughs) shit tastes like ass. I couldn't agree more. Oh, my goodness. I don't know how you people eat that. Goodness gracious. But, uh, all right, so, Kiki, um, any house cleaning we need to do before we get going? We won't burn too much time. Anything people need to know?
1: Um, If you can't catch it live, we are on YouTube, we are on iTunes, Um, leave us a review, leave us comments. If you want to see a specific guest, let us know.
0: I like that. Yes, if you have a guest you want to see, let us know. We got some good ones coming up, including the author of Grit, Angela Duckworth, best selling author of Grit. That's going to be a good one as well. Um, All right, so listen folks, let's just jump right into it. I am super pumped to introduce you to and invite my man. Kian McLaughlin, by the way, is it Glocklin or Laughlin? Which way do you roll with that?
2: Yeah, McLaughlin, yeah, you got to right.
0: The hard, see, it's the hard stuff. See, it's C and he calls it a K, and it's a G-H and he calls it a K. I mean, he's hard, not this soft business like <laughs> Cian McLaughlin. All right, so it's Kian McLaughlin. He's written a great book called Rebirth of a Salesman. He is a partner and uh, CEO, correct, of Trinity? Correct. Yeah. Yes, a sales consulting firm. You could almost call it my competitor, but there is no competitor keen, and I'm all good with that, right? <laughs> so welcome a man, welcome.
2: Thank you, nice to be here.
0: Yeah, so tell us a little bit about yourself. What what, what is behind the book? Tell us about you, what's it like down under? This it's yours sure. for a few minutes.
2: Uh, well, it's tomorrow where we are, so it's uh, it's 5 a.m. Friday morning. Um, so this is a nice way to start the day to uh, to chat to you guys stateside. Um, so I, I I live in Australia, but I'm actually Irish. So uh, I grew up uh, in the main streets of Dublin in uh, in Ireland, and then moved to Australia in my early 20s. So I'm sort of foot in both camps, uh, but not so far integrated that I think Vegemite is edible. Uh, let's put it that way. So. Uh, um, And look, you know, like a lot of people, I carried a sales bag. I think, you know, we're all in sales in some way, shape, or form, whether we admit it or not. Uh, I did admit it, and for about probably 15 years in the corporate world, I carried a big quota and a big number, and um, yeah, played my trade. And and about five years ago, I decided to jump ship and um, set up my own uh, consultancy. And I really that's where the you know the second phase of the journey began and so for the last five years I've worked with companies big and small, uh, a lot of tech companies, a lot of telcos to do something really specific and really kind of niche um, to help them better
0: understand why they win and lose the big deals they pitch for. So do you primarily work with big companies on trying to win and lose big deals? What I do is…
2: I observed something when I was in the tech world. uh, I observed something. We did we did an awesome job of of pitching. You know, we really put our heart and soul into it. And for some of the big tenders or pitches, we might spend three, six, nine months, and we and we you know we'd move heaven and earth. And then we either won the deal or we lost the deal, and we had no understanding as to why we won or lost. And we just went about our business and did the next one. Uh, And I just saw it was kind of an emperor's new clothes moment for me. I saw there was there was just a a problem with how we were doing things, so I said "Well, why don't we just ask our customers, why don't we just develop a, a bit of a process to do that and so because no one else was doing it I said well let me go away and do that and so that's what we do, we speak to the customer at the end of the sales cycle on behalf of vendors and find out what really happened.
0: So, so the, you had a great story in your book, by the way folks, um, Kian is the author of Rebirth of a Salesman, here it is, look at this pretty thing, Rebirth of a Salesman. Uh, it's a great book and in it you have a, so go pick it up folks, you get it on Amazon correct? Correct. Alright, excellent. So folks go pick it up um, and he has a great story in here about uh, how basically, I'm going to use my words and I'll let you clean it up, but basically how you guys just lucked your way into a deal. You were not even a consideration through any phase and then because you were able, it's sort of like the guy at the bar who hangs around long enough he ends up going home with a chick because he just outlasted everybody. I mean, that's really what it's like, right?
2: 100%. 100%. And, you know, Keenan, the worst thing about that deal was we literally popped the champagne corks. You know, we clapped ourselves in the back and said, what a great job we had done. And It was only because I had this kind of inkling that maybe there was a business to be built around understanding why we win or lose that I even circled back with this customer and said, is there any chance you might give me a little bit of a debrief? And he said, yeah, sure. And I jumped on a plane, flew up, spent an hour with this guy, and he said, you guys were terrible." (laughs) <laughs> and that was pretty much, his, pretty much his opening remark. And I was like, hey, on a second, you just did a huge piece of business with us. He said, yeah, I know. But you were terrible at the start, but somebody else backed out. So we needed to take three through to the, to the first round proper. And then you were terrible at that phase, but someone else pushed us too hard. So we got rid of them. So we needed to take two through to the final stage. And all of our user community picked someone else. And, and I was like, OK, so how, how am I standing here having this conversation? And he said. Because our CFO asked for one specific piece of information that that other company couldn't provide. And I, I, I gave you a question <clears throat> you might remember a few months back, and I said, yeah, I remember. And he said, you responded to that. And that was the one factor, the one single factor that won that deal for you. So you were terrible all the way through. And if the stars hadn't aligned in exactly that way, game over. But usually what would have happened was we would have just left that. you know, We would have just walked away and said, we did a great job. and. And it's just crazy. We're leaving these nuggets of gold on the table every time because we just don't take the time to sit down with our customer and say, hey, can you just give us some really honest feedback? What do we do well? Where do we drop the ball? And at least then we we extract some value. Win, lose, or draw.
0: So what you're saying is, and you built a whole business on this, which I find fascinating, is what you're saying is at the end of the day, rarely do companies know why they actually won or lost. That's
2: exactly what I'm saying. And it's it's, one of the most fascinating parts of my... Uh, my daily life is where I get to have a conversation with a salesperson after I've spoken to their customer and I say to them tell me why you won that deal and I say oh, well we won for this reason and this, we won on price uh, we won on the quality of our product and this particular feature and we won on this and I say, no, it was none of those things, it was none of those things you won on risk, you won on two of the references you did and you won on one particular person in your consulting team who was so good they said we need that person and therefore that was how you made the decision and, and, and we just don't know this stuff and so as a result we make assumptions and what happens most of the time is we make an assumption and if you're in a larger organization then there's a little drop down list in your CRM and you say why did we win that deal and you pick we won on this this and this and that becomes the default understanding or for that matter why we lost Well, we lost for these reasons you know we definitely didn't lose because I did a shit job we lost because of this and this and this and again, that becomes the default setting, and then we start to actually make decisions about our business based on false information, and we just continue on down the track. And
0: it's just crazy. So, how important do you? So, having done this, how long have you been doing this now? How long has your company been doing this?
2: Almost five years.
0: Okay, and and how many post sale, de- what do you call them? Post sale debriefs. What do you call post sale yeah, reviews? Yeah, yeah,
2: we, we call it we. we basically the way we do it is a, is a two-pronged approach. So we do an interview with the customer, or sometimes a couple of people from the customer and then also a survey. So there's a qualitative piece which speaks to that particular deal and then there's a quantitative piece which flows across multiple deals so you can start to see trends across different deals. Um, and, you know, we've done hundreds of these. And, and the really interesting thing for me, so you held up my book a moment ago. I set out to write a book and I thought that book was going to be all around win-loss reviews and how important it is and how it's going to change your business. And actually it evolved into something very different, it evolved into a book about how do people make decisions and what does that mean for us as salespeople and sales uh, professionals and how is that changing because the really, really interesting thing that I discovered and you mentioned in the in this promo for this show that the world of sales is is shrinking. You know, business to, con- business to consumer sales is really, really dramatically shrinking. The bottom end of B2B sales is shrinking also. There's only one area that's kind of staying stable, maybe growing ever so slightly and that's the sort of the higher end of business to business. And the reason that's happening is because as the level of complexity increases, customers are looking for somebody to say, look, I understand your solution. I, I understand our solution. I understand your industry. I can I can bring you some ideas. I can challenge you. I can call bullshit when I see bullshit. I have the level of credibility and authority to actually have you perceive me as someone you want to work with. They're making decisions on the people, not on the technology and that's, that was a really interesting learning for me.
0: Well, that's sort of in line with what the Challenger Sale says, right? The Challenger Sale did a report, and they found out that when it came to customer loyalty, with sales loyalty, the largest or the biggest impact was the relationship with the salesperson and the ability for the salesperson to be a smart person that they felt understood their needs and supported them. Yeah, and it's been really interesting. So. <clears throat>
2: I just just came back from London and I did a did a keynote at a conference over there and and the kind of central premise to what I was talking about on that particular day. Now bear in mind that was to a large audience of primarily sales leaders and, and sales professionals and and I was basically saying, guys, look, you don't rely on the on the brand on your business card anymore because basically no one cares. No one cares about the feature function. That's just an apples for apples comparison. They are buying you, right? They are buying you. So if you walk in with credibility and authority and just, you know, we think we're really smart. I'm going to research my customer on LinkedIn. Oh, okay, great. That's pretty smart. They're going to research you, too. And they'll judge a book by the cover. And they're, they're going to want to see, you know, yes, they're going to want to see your LinkedIn profile, but they're going to want to see what have you said, what have you written, what have you shared, what video content, do you have an opinion, are you a thought leader, do you know about it, their industry, can they believe anything you're going to say? And the unfortunate reality is a lot of us have relied on the brand on the business card for so long. We've, we've neglected our own professional brand or our own personal brand and ironically that's much more authentic and that's where decisions are coming from.
0: Well okay, I'm going to come back to this because you don't want to get me going. I have a whole chapter in my book on that piece that I, that folks listening to this have heard umpteen times so I won't beat them over the skull with this but I, I want to take it back to, to this idea of these post deal reviews, right? So you've done hundreds of them. you know. What is some of the common misconceptions that you find that are different than, that our listeners would say? Wow, I can't believe people won or lost because of that, or they're inconsistent yeah. with what the what your customers thought for the reasons they won or lost.
2: Look, that's a great question, Ken. And let, let's start with loss versus win, just just okay. because it's you know it tends to be the one where there's a lot more emotion. Um, one of the things we hear very very consistently is they just didn't listen to our needs. They didn't either didn't take the time to listen to our needs, or they just you know, really didn't care, um, and that you know that comes in a lot of formats. They didn't do their discovery well. Um, they went straight into pitch mode. They you know they talked feature, function, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, focus too much on our, on their solution and not enough on our problem. So so you know there's a term that certainly I've used in in my career, which is the kind of the show up and throw up, right? You know, I've got my slides, I've got my deck, I'm ready to go, right? So what? Who cares? And that's the big issue. With, With a lot of salespeople, and you know, it pains me to say this because I I have a huge amount of admiration and respect for salespeople, and I think it's a really really important role. And I think it's been much maligned in our, you know, certainly over here in this part of the world. I think possibly in North America, as a profession, it's seen as a bit more mainstream. In in Europe and, and Asia, it's not. It's you're very much a second class citizen. And so it frustrates me then when salespeople, kind of you know allow this uh, perception to persist by just doing you know a, a poor job but the real issue we hear is all the time and this kills me is they were just unprofessional or we just saw them as too high of a risk
0: risk so I've, I, that came up in your book a couple times and now you're talking about yeah. you so the, so to go a little deeper with this idea of risk perception
2: well risk is really interesting because it happens at two levels and I suppose a lot of things in sales do right so there's the there's the organizational risk which is you know um, do we see that this project or product or implementation or whatever will actually deliver the outcome we expect right and that speaks to a whole lot of things have you done it before is it proven etc cetera, etc cetera. but then there's a whole other area of risk which is in many respects even more important which is the personal risk is this going to help me with my career path is this going to make me look good in this organization is it going to um, Give me a perception that I've, you know, that I know what I'm doing. Are you going to hang around and be here when the shit hits the fan, or are you going to disappear and walk away as soon as you've dropped the product or the service? Because and this is where it gets really, really interesting, how do people make decisions, right? We actually use the limbic, you know, the right side of our brain, the emotion, the feeling, and then we overlay the logic. And that's the bit which kind of allows us to justify the decision we've already made based on do I like them do I trust them do I you know do I could I see myself working with them it's really really interesting and this happens at all levels but we never sell to the right brain we always sell to the feature function logic left brain and that's just a massive flaw in a lot of uh, a lot of sales
0: interesting interesting yeah. why do we do that why do we sell to the left brain why do we do that well, it's a great question, we should do. But
2: to your earlier question, Keenan, so so if that's why we lose, right? why do we win? We win based on uh, the quality of our people. It comes up time and time and time and time again. you know. And, and really interesting, even in huge transactions, they're saying, we want that person and that person, and if you can guarantee it's them, then we're in, and if you can't, then we're out. And that's crazy, you might be talking a $10, 15000000 million deal, and they're saying, no, I want those two people because I have confidence that they can they can deliver the outcome because they know what they're talking about and, and and they can challenge us and they can bring ideas to bear or whatever. So that's really interesting. So quality of the people and cultural fit as well. There's a story, I don't know if I shared it in the book, I can't remember. I did a review for a client and their their initial tender response was awful, really, really poor. Um, and they just about made it through to the start line. But then they did something which was really interesting. They recognised that even though they were engaging with a white-collar audience in a nice office, this organisation was really blue-collar. These guys were out. They were, you know, you know, fixing the roads and the railways and that sort of thing. So they they went out and got a couple of those kind of ruggedized, um iPads, the ones you can pour water on and throw and bounce and all that sort of stuff, and it's not going to impact it. They just went out and got a couple of them, and they brought them in and said. Guys, could you see yourselves using these when you're out, you know, on, on site? Do you think, you know, if, if you needed to put in some information, could you see yourselves using them? And by the way, you could take them home at the weekends and the kids could play with them and they couldn't break them because they're ruggedized and whatever. And they were like, yeah, that's great. That's cool. So it was a really subtle little thing, but it was around cultural fit, taking the time to understand, a little bit around how are we going to work with you. And, and it spoke volumes and it moved them from the bottom of the pack to the top of the pack.
0: Crazy. I love that idea. It's a little bit of creativity, right? I mean, creativity can go a long way.
2: Yeah, and it's also know your, knowing your audience, and let's be honest, you know, if you don't know your audience, then we're just throwing mud at the wall and hoping it will stick. And if we do know our audience, and this comes back to how do you create an incredible pitch, right? You know, and I'm, I'm fascinated with the whole world of, of pitching and the recipe for pitching. Um, start with credibility, and credibility precedes you walking into the room. It's all the stuff you've done beforehand that people can Google and research. So that's really, really important and I don't think as salespeople or sales professionals we put enough time into that and that's a really easy fix let's be honest you know we are who the Internet says we are so let's actually take some ownership of that.
0: (laughs) I like that we are who the Internet says we are, that's good. We are, you know people will judge a book by the cover. right. so you've done done hundreds of these right and you have people what what do you do with it? So you bring this information back. What do you what yeah. do you recommend to a salesperson? What do you recommend to a company? What do they do with it? Once they get the information, that's a great question. And do
2: you know what? It's really interesting because when I when I first started out, I didn't even think about that. I, I had this view that I would give all of these great insights to to these companies, and then they'd go away and do everything with it, and that might our role would end at that point. And you're, you're spot on, what happens is they say, that's great, what do we do now? So what it actually does is it, it, it informs, call it sales transformation, call it sales enablement, it doesn't really matter. What it says is, all the noise goes away, now we know where the gaps are, or now we know the things that we're doing well, and then if it's a gap, we go away and we specifically address that. So I'll give you an example, we worked with a telco, and they were losing some deals, and that by summer they were losing a lot of deals, not just new deals, existing customers. And we went and we did a whole piece of work. And the feedback was, your strategy's wrong. You're trying, to, you're trying to drive something down our throat, which is a mass adoption strategy. And you know what? You don't have the credibility to do that. You don't have the product set to do that. You know, we're not interested. And it was only getting this feedback from multiple customers that allowed this organization to say, you know what? We've got to change our strategy. Apart from that, what what they would do, which is what most organizations do, is just keep tweaking and tweak, keep tweaking. And, and it's, the noise goes away, now we know what works, now we know what doesn't work, now we know why we're winning against particular competitors and losing, now we can do something about it.
0: So what did that company do? What was their new strategy? How did they pivot?
2: Well what they did was they fundamentally changed their strategy and they said okay, we're for, for existing incumbent um, customers we're going to go in and earn the right to have a broader conversation. For net new prospects we're going to take the time to do some extra discovery, find out what is the real area of interest and while we're doing that, we're going to set a vision for down the track in 12, 18, 24 months, this is where we think we might be able to take you. But for the time being, let's focus on exactly what you want and let's earn the right to then have that broader conversation, which made perfect sense. Nobody was objecting to the fact that they had a vision for the future where they could get them to. What they were objecting to is they were trying to they were trying to ram that down their throat and, you
0: know, and, and customers don't want that. Trying to get them to eat too much too fast. That's exactly right. Got it, got it, got it. All right, so you... This is this is really interesting. How do people? When you go out and you talk to organizations, you say, "Hey, you know, there is there is gold," in them, in them there and then and them their hills, yeah. In doing and doing post sale assessments, you need to do them. How do people respond?
2: It's kind of one of two ways, right? You know, initially everyone goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah," no, that makes a lot of sense, right? And then some people and some organizations say, "I." you know what, we're up for this. Others look at it and they say, you know, it's going to be a bit too political. Or, I don't know if we have the appetite to really hear what's going on. Because the unfortunate reality is if you do this, right, you're shining a light on something. So you're saying to your customers, we really want to know. And then if your customers tell you, and the interesting thing for me is how frequently they're prepared to say, yeah, absolutely. And they'll open the kimono and they'll say, come on in. And they'll tell it all, you know, warts and all. And often they'll turn into coaches and, and be really, really you know, helpful in the feedback they provide. But I say to companies, don't do it if you haven't got the appetite to hear some ugly stuff. Because if you do it, customers are going to expect that you'll actually then start to address those issues. And you'll, you'll act on their, on their concerns. Because it's really interesting. If you position, just imagine you're in a sales cycle. And you, at the very start of the sales cycle, you're engaging with a prospect. And you say, look, win, lose, or draw in a couple of months time when all the dust is settled, we'd really love to get an hour of your time so you can just give us some feedback about what we did well and where there's some room for improvement. And the reason we do this is because we find it's probably the single best way to get better as a, as a sales organization, to lift our game, to innovate. Is that something you'd be up for? And I say, yeah, yeah, we'd be happy to do that. You've already differentiated yourself in the eyes of a customer because you've said, I actually care, win, lose or draw, we want to do this. And by the way, invariably we'll use a third party so it doesn't feel awkward for you if you want to put the boot into me and you know, say I did a crap job or my boss did a crap job. So that the independence piece works quite well that way. But my feedback to companies is if you can't afford it or you don't want to do it as a third party, just do it yourself. Just get a third party internally in your organization to do it. But don't leave you've earned the right if you've done a halfway decent job, you've earned the right to the feedback, don't leave it on the table.
0: So so you, you recommend telling the client or prospect up front that you're gonna do it, not after the fact? 100%. For a couple of reasons. One,
2: you, you know, you're going to get you're going to get a positive impression of you and your organisation. The fact that you actually take the time to do that. Two, there's no ulterior motive. If I just lost a deal and then I come back to you, Keen, and I say, Oh, by the way, you know, is there any chance we could sit down for an hour and you could just kind of walk me through it? You may well think, Well, hang on a second. Why are you doing? Why do you want to do that? You know, are you going to try and muddy the water? Are you going to try and get back in by the back door? Are you going to try and throw somebody on the bus, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera? If you position that to me beforehand, I'm like, yeah, sure, we're ready to go. Okay. All
0: right, and so, what is the key to doing a really good assessment? So obviously, hire you, but if we don't hire well, you, right? What's, what's yeah? I, <laughs> look, the key—it's
2: you know—I'd love to pretend it's really complicated, and it's not. It's actually not the the key for me. The approach I took, which was you know, not rocket science, was well, let's let's look at our sales cycle. Let's break it down into its component parts, and then let's just ask some halfway decent questions, at, you know, at each stage of you know the journey. So, when you first engage with us as a company, you know, was our content good? Was our website good? were we responsive? Uh, when we, you know, when we had that first chat, you know, how did that go for you? You know, did we ask intelligent questions? Did we add value? I have this philosophy in, in relation to sales that we actually need to go in with the heart of a teacher, right? And we need to yes you know, treat Treat customers like customers before they ever become customers. So we're adding value, and I know it's a cliche to say add value, because it kind of doesn't really mean anything, but it actually does mean a lot. If we take the time to do it, we just go, look, here. Here's some great content. Here's some stuff i have to think about. Maybe even here's some stuff about you know our competitors, because they're going to go out and find it themselves anyway. So you, you, you get first mover advantage. Actually, you actually, know, if you say, go and have a look at these things, and if you think it's still relevant, let's have a chat. And what you're doing is you're earning the right to you know to, to expand that relationship. So break it down into its component parts and just ask you know the sort of questions you would you would ask. Don't don't sugarcoat it and also don't try and get too smart. Just say, you know, did we do a good job here? And what about our what about our tech guys and what about this and what about that? And where could we improve? And you know, what did you really like? And what about you know competitors? Sometimes the one issue is competitors, sometimes people are a little bit a little bit sort of uh, loath to share feedback, particularly if you've lost. And that's okay. But Quite often they will, and it's really, really, really interesting. Really interesting.
0: So, h- how do you recommend doing it? Just do they do it on like a face-to-face and and talk to someone for an hour? Or do you recommend?
2: Yeah. Are you still there, Keenan? I think I'm going to lose you. Are you? Yeah. Um, oh, you're back. He's back. Look, oh, uh, did you, you know, did, did you hear the
0: question. Yeah, you know, I got, I got the
2: question. Yeah, I got the question. Um, one of two ways. If it's, if it's kind of transactional, you're going to be doing lots of these, then you can do, you can do a survey and a kind of a, you know, a uh, an audio or video interview. If it's a big deal, if it's an important strategic win or loss, you know, just sit down with them for an hour. Just sit down and spend some time, and you know, and and ask them if it's okay to record it because you don't want to be scribbling notes all the way through. You want to have a conversation, and if they're happy for you to do that, and they know that you're only going to use it for internal purposes, hit hit play on the recorder, and then just start to kind of move through the sales cycle and ask them, you know, ask them questions. But make sure that you then get your team together and you debrief. And you, or whether you're doing it yourself or you're doing it in a broader sales context, get together and debrief on it once you've got the insights, and then commit to actually doing something about it.
0: If I'm an individual sales rep and my company doesn't do it and won't do it, is it okay yeah. for me to do it? Is
2: it okay for me to do that? 100%. Before I started doing it as a company, I started doing it directly as a salesperson because I wanted to test. I wanted to test two things. I wanted to test would people share this feedback and was there a business in it? So while I was still employed in the corporate world, I started ringing up my contacts and saying, any chance I can you know come and have a chat for an hour? And they're like, yeah. And I don't know if you um, – there's a chapter in the book because the question I often get asked by people, you know, I tell them about this and they go, Oh, wow, that's really interesting. Why don't we do that? It's really obvious. And then the next question is, yeah, but hang on a second. Would customers really participate in that? Would they be willing to share those insights? And, I, and that was a really important question for me as well. So I just went out to the to the world and asked that question as part of the book. I went out to a whole host of procurement people and senior leaders and said, Why would you do this? It doesn't make sense. Why would you do it? And they said it's in our best interest, we want companies that are prepared to listen and innovate and improve, we don't want a monopoly, we want a market where there's lots of opportunity for us and by the way we recognize that you put a lot of time and effort and money into pitching and tendering to us so we believe that you've earned the right to some feedback so you know the majority are well up for it.
0: Interesting, this is cool cool stuff everybody in case you're wondering those who came in later just now listening we are talking with um, Keen McLaughlin he is the author of Rebirth of a Salesman and he's dropping some mad wisdom on the power of feedback from your customers after you win and or lose the deal. This is good stuff man, I really like where you're going so I just want to keep flying in. So um, do you have to do it for everyone or is there a good ratio like 1 and 4, yeah. 1 and 6, one and two.
2: I'm going to give you that a really annoying answer, which is it really depends. It depends on a whole lot of factors. It you, you know deal values, you know where you're at in in the life cycle. If, if I've got a brand new product coming to market, I'll probably want to do it more frequently because there's there's more uh, gold to be to be you know gleaned from those. Um, if I'm losing to a competitor, I lost a deal. And this is you know we never like to talk about lost deals as as, as salespeople. I, I lost a deal, a big deal, and. When I went back and, and had these conversations, I just got outsold. I got out-thought, I got strategized by a, in that particular deal by a better salesperson. Uh, we, we were the big fish and, and and they were the small fish. So we were positioning risk, and they were saying, "Guys, you know, we're we're a small organization. You say jump, we say how oh, high. Where do you think you fit in there? Uh, you know, in their customer list, how important you're going to be to them." So we had all these landmines, but he laid the landmines in advance, and we walked on every single one of them. And it was very humbling, very humbling to get that feedback. But what was great was the next time we went head to head, I knew for a fact that this competitor in this geography would use that strategy, because they'd smashed us the last time, and now I had their playbook. And so I was able to invert a whole lot of things we did, and, you know, and we won not hands down, as we should have done the first time. But but that's the really weird thing. You put it in the sporting context, and I know Keenan, you're you know a pretty mad sports fan. Like we have the sports playbook and we're always watching the game tape afterwards and saying, Right, what can we learn, what can we take away? And yet in in business or in sales, we don't watch the game tape. It's crazy. We just say, right, well let's let's stick that one in the bottom drawer and never look at it again and then go ahead and make the, the, the same mistakes next Sunday on game day. It just makes no sense. And yet we as an industry, unfortunately, we tend to do it quite a lot.
0: I really liked how you said um, uh, you you could see what happened and plan differently next time. I really like that piece. Do you see value to an organization using it as a way to evaluate reps or is that taking it too deep and is that dangerous? Look,
2: my honest answer is I don't know, I haven't considered it, I haven't thought about it from that perspective, but what is really interesting for me is how this concept is is evolving more and more, so I'll talk to some clients and I'll say, look, that's really, really interesting, we've got some very, very big customers that are on maybe a two or three year rolling kind of um, uh, contract, could we use it as a way to de-risk losing those customers 12 months out before we... Um, before we have to re-sign them, could we go in and do a piece of work like this? I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, you could do that. Could we use this as a way to actually help us with our go/no-go decision? So front it and actually put customers through this sort of um, you know step before we actually commit to going you know to going all the way through a sales funnel with them and spending the hundreds of thousands of dollars? Yeah, potentially you could. So once we start to think about it from the perspective of having an open dialogue with our customers. It kind of can morph off in lots of different directions, and I think for for some reason, and I still can't quite fathom what this is. We have this fear. We don't see our customers as real people. We see them as customers, and maybe we put them on a pedestal, or maybe it's the, that sense of the customers always right. You know what? They're they're really happy to be asked if you do it in the right way, and you're and you're you know professional and courteous, and you don't um, use it as a mechanism to try and get in by the back door, or, you know use it as an underhand, you're really legitimately interested to know. People
0: will share, they'll
2: absolutely share. Um, so yeah.
0: Okay. So i got to believe, I've got to imagine that because you do this and you've done this so often you start to see some trends or you can see some things that are going on with salespeople right so as you get all this feedback that salespeople do, did or didn't do this or in the wins or the losses you see trends, what are some of the things that Really good salespeople are doing that you're finding in these post sales interviews?
2: They're they're telling really good stories. Um, Which, you know, it was probably only four or five years ago. What's really frustrating for me is how much stuff I've learned since since I've stopped selling day to day. And I'm like, if only I'd known that five or ten years ago, I could have changed the world, you know? but I did. I always, you know, I, I, I'm an Irish boy, so you know, we, we all tell stories all the time, anyway. So I did see the value of stories. What what great salespeople do is they understand that storytelling is ingrained in our DNA, right? It goes back to you know to to the cave drawings on the walls. It goes back to biblical time. and they use stories and they use them as a way to you know put new ideas into people's heads and normalize them and uh, create context for the things they're talking about. They the way I put it is, they answer the so what question. We used to do a little exercise where if you're going to do a big pitch, right, it's a really important pitch, then you do a dry run. And in the dry run, people can just hold up a card saying, so what? Anytime you say something which is kind of, who cares? What's the context? Why should I listen to you? They hold up the so what card, and you say, oh, OK. Sorry, the reason I'm telling you about the fact that we have great uh, um, staff Retention is because that's really important to you. You're going to get consistency on your project, and this, and that, you know, Oh, okay. Now, now I care. Now it's relevant. Now you give me some context. So great salespeople are really good at do, doing that. They tell great stories and they provide great context for the information they're providing, rather than just feature function. Drop it and expect the customer to join the dots. So that's that's a big one. Another yes. one I see is they. Oh, keep going. So yeah. gonna, go ahead.
0: No, go go. Uh,
2: so so they're they're incredibly good listeners. You know they. They're you know that old adage, you've got you know you've got two ears and one mouth and you should use it in that ratio? These are the sort of salespeople who get that. They don't they don't do the show up and throw up. They they go in, they ask intelligent questions and then they shut their mouths and they listen and they probe and they ask more because they actually care. They're not just doing it because it's a technique, they're doing it because they genuinely want to understand and they recognize that, that information is going to inform how they tailor their offering further down the track and how they make it personal and um, and relevant to the audience they're working with, so 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 they're so they're great storytellers, they're great listeners. They they tend to be very humble, which goes against all of those stereotypes and cliches that we know about salespeople. They don't push themselves forward. You know, they they build a good team around them. They put the customer at the center of what they're doing. They they bring in resources really well. They partner really well. It's, you know, it's really, really interesting. None of those—they let their EQ dominate their IQ. That's another really, really important one. In um, in 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 my view, EQ eats IQ for breakfast in the sales world, and yet we we, we never focus on that. You know. Mm-hmm. All
0: right. <clears throat> what are some of the things that salespeople do that aren't good? So, what do you hear feedback when customers say this did not go well? This is, we're not happy with this.
2: How long have we got, you know, it's, it's, it's a long list, I'm afraid. Um, you, you know, just just wanting to talk about their offering, just wanting to get straight into, into pitch mode is, is probably the biggest one we hear. But the other thing is, and you know, I mentioned lack of professionalism early on, and, and this is a little bit unfortunate, maybe a little bit unfair to salespeople, because you think about, in, you know, in a long sales cycle, you think about how many touch points there might be in an organization, right? So you could be the best salesperson in the world, really humble, great listener, great storyteller, but you've got some idiot on, you know, on the reception desk or on inside sales or in your consulting team or somewhere else, and they let that side down. So, so it takes everyone to build that professional level of trust and you know commitment and engagement, and it just takes one or two idiots to drop it down, and and the whole thing kind of it's house of cards comes crashing down. So. So what does that mean? It means if you if you run a business to your CEO or even you're a small business owner, you need to look at all the pieces of the puzzle. When they went to my website first, was it good? Was the content good? Was it easy to interact with? Was it easy to get hold of us? You have to make it easy to buy from, as to thing from you know, making customers jump through all these hoops. And 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 again, particularly with larger organizations, we tend to get a little bit divorced from the customer. I mean we have all these Things that we think are really smart and actually they're dumb, and it makes it hard to do business with us. And people just go, you know what? I'm going to go somewhere else.
0: Okay. So I got a question that's really going to—I'm really very, very interested actually getting your opinion because I—I okay. I think this is going to be. This is going to be. I don't even know if you've touched this, but it's a real space. So, what about customers who they themselves? or prospects who they themselves are not good buyers. And so they create – so you just described the scenario, which I totally get, empathetic salespeople who really don't want to sell feature function, they're trying to engage with the customer, they're trying to be a true consultant, they're trying to understand their business problems, etc. a lot of customers give you the highs and they're like, no, just do what I tell you to do, right? So what do you, do you have any data or any feedback where the customer is not a good buyer? Yeah. And,
2: yeah, so, you know, this happens all the time, you know, the perennial, either they're a tire kicker or they're, you know, they, they, they want everything to be their own way or they think they're the best negotiator in the world, so they're going to start kicking you from the get-go. There's a couple of really, really simple things you can do, and, and some of this has fed out of the, the feedback from our, you know, win and loss reviews, particularly loss reviews, because a lot of the loss reviews, when you actually analyze them, you're saying, we should never really bid for that in the first place. You know what, that wasn't probably a good fit we were never really likely to win that. So what what that does is it starts to create whatever you want to call it, a bid no bid process, a go no go process. So you actually capture certain information that says you know what if it looks like this, it smells like this it's probably not necessarily going to be a good one for us to go after. But there's a next step to that which is you can front end some of that and then you can say to a customer look we have a process internally here which we find works really well for our clients and also for us which is until we get a certain level of information and access and insight, we don't go ahead because we find it's it's more likely to waste your time down the track and our time, and we don't want to do that. So, so this is these are the kind of the prerequisites for us to proceed with this. We need to have an understanding of this. We need to be able to do a meeting which covers this, this, and this. And look, completely understand. If you're not at that point yet, we can we can come back and touch on that down the track when you are, or if you're not prepared to share that, that's your prerogative. But we're going to step away. And what does that do? It actually it redresses the balance, and all of a sudden, because what happens a lot, particularly with younger salespeople, is, is there's this kind of dynamic where the customers up here, and we don't feel a sense of equality, so we're hoping we'll get a call, hoping we'll get a meeting, and that's bullshit. You know, we're we're professionals; our time is precious. Um, it, it needs to be a meeting of minds and of equals, and there's the little things you can do to establish that equality. And one of those is say, hey, you know what? We've got some barriers to entry too. And our expectation is we know this, and you do this, and you do this, and then we can move forward together.
0: I, I, I'm a huge fan. I love that. I'm a huge fan of this idea that says, I don't do exactly what you tell me to do, and I'm going to choose not to participate. So so I think that's a great advice, folks. If you're not listening, pay attention to that. Follow it. You do not have an obligation to chase every opportunity. You, you have no, you are under no obligation. If your sales manager or leader is putting you in that obligation, then you got a shitty sales manager. So with that said though, have you, I'm not sure I want to ask this question, but let's just say somebody, a particular close-loss deal, right, that you were brought in to evaluate was a crappy um, buyer. What do yeah. those close-loss deals look like? In other words, does the buyer take any ownership? Is there something about how they respond to your questions that tell you they were a crappy buyer? Is there something different? What do you see in those? And can you ferret out the good buyer from yeah. the crappy buyer?
2: That's a great question. And look, I, you know, I can only I can only answer it off the top of my head because I haven't really done any analysis. But what I find is they tend to be the more evasive ones. You know, they tend to be the ones who put more more checks and balances around the questions you're going to be able to ask and they want to see them and they want to understand exactly the context and all of that sort of stuff. And, and I don't know if this expression is is one that's used in North America, but I'll use it and you tell me. It's an arse covering exercise. So oh, they yeah. want to cover their ass. Oh, Yes, yes arse. Yeah. They, yes, yeah, totally. yeah. they want to cover their ass because they're concerned that you might call foul or you might say, hang on a second, this wasn't a good process or you know, you were always leaning in a particular direction. It's quite ironic because when we lose deals, one of the one of the uh, reasons that are often given is, yeah, they were they were always going to stick with the incumbent or they were always going to go that route. And salespeople kind of knowingly say that, you know, at the end we're like, okay, what well, if you knew that, why did you why did you pursue it in the first place, right? And it's bullshit. But there are occasions where absolutely it wasn't a fair process or it wasn't a a good process, and they were heading off in a different direction for whatever reason. People won't tell you that. You know, they're they're going to do their best to make it look like it was very much a, a, a professional, appropriate process. And you know, I think it's more gut feel than it is anything else. I haven't done any level of, of analysis to say, you know, if if they say this and this and this, then you know they're a crappy buyer. But I think you get you get a feel pretty quickly.
0: All right, I, I dig that. I like that a lot. All right, man. We are coming to the end here. This has been fantastic, everybody. Again, we are talking to Kian McLaughlin. He is the author of *Rebirth of a Salesman*. Um, we have been having a fantastic conversation around uh, post-deal assessments and evaluations, and I've learned a lot in here. it's Something I've never really done. Uh, I've always been a fan of them, but never really thought of how to do them. You get one, move on to the next thing. So, I, I think here's here's sort of my final question that I want you to come up with something you want to close with. It seems to me to make these successful this needs to be a process, this needs to be the last stage of your sales process and that you need to actually have a, a set of templates and, a, and an actual execution process built into this so it happens automatically and everybody knows what to do. Is that accurate? Yeah. Hey,
2: to be honest what you've just described there is is, is the nirvana that I'm hoping you know, in my small part of the world. to. Achieve eventually. You know we have what we call the sales cycle. All I want is one more step at the end of the sales cycle, which is which is debrief. It's you know it's it's do a professional debrief. Whether we do that ourselves in house, someone else does it. I actually don't care.
0: What I like about it though is is if you build it into the sales process and you build it into the CRM. Now I have all the CRM data sitting right here. So let's just say you know Kian leaves. And Keenan comes in and Keenan has to sell to XYZ company again. Not only do I see what happened to the sales price, but I can actually see the post loss or win feedback. Right? So we talk Thanks. about a data yes, we talk about a data driven world these days. We get all these people talking about data this, data that. That seems to me like some of the greatest data we can have, and no one's really doing anything to make it happen.
2: That my it took the words right out of my mouth.
0: Oh, wow, you know, I try to do that every once in a while. Shit, right? Yeah, uh, it's a nice Yeah, that. right, right. Okay, this is this is fantastic. All right, so on that note, considering our listeners are going to be individual sales reps and/or sales leaders, what do you say to them? What is the closing thought or whatever you want them to walk away with?
2: So, forget about win loss for a moment. I, I, what I want to talk about is the the insights I've gleaned from win loss about how to be a better salesperson because. Let's be honest, it's a tough job, if anything you and I can talk about now is going to help people uh, hit their numbers, be more successful, then that's what I'd like them to take away. So there's a couple of things for me. Let your EQ dominate your IQ, you know, have empathy, engage with people, really, really take the time to listen. Learn how to tell great stories. Recognize that stories are probably the most important thing in your armory. So stories of past customers, stories of things we're doing in the future, it gives great context to what you're what you're talking about. Um, appeal to the limbic brain. Focus on on the the emotional right side of people's brains rather than the you know rational feature function left side. Because let's be honest, that's not how most decisions are made. And yet we spend an inordinate amount of time there. And the last thing I'd say, and we haven't really touched on this, but the best in my in my experience, the best pitch invariably beats the best product or the best price. So you really need to learn how to hone your pitch, right? You really, really need to do that. So how do you do that? I'll give you a quick like, 10-second recipe. Establish your credibility and your authority up front, right? Very, very important. Harness the power of storytelling. We just talked about that. Make sure you're not just focusing on, you know, on the rational brain, but focus on the emotional brain. Make sure you're answering the so what question, because everyone's going to be sitting in the room, and you'll say something, and they think, so what? Why do I care about that? the reason you should care about that. You know you put up those like um, 50 logos, oh these are all the companies we work with, so what? Put up four logos and say, we've put up those four because that company we think would be a great reference for you to talk to. That company's done something a little bit similar. That company's in an adjacent industry, but they've got some really interesting ideas we might try and bleed in here, etc., etc. Um, and then finally, create a memorable hook. What's your hook? If they forget everything else, what are they going to walk away and remember from your pitch? That's going to that's going to stick with them. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I'd say.
0: That is a fant. That's a fantastic closing. I like that. I love the "so what," right? when my fa- I, I, you know, you're a lot more nicer than me. I say, who gives a shit? That's my favorite thing. Who gives a shit? Yeah. Why do I give a shit about that? Why do they give a shit about that? It reminds me of a, a book I read a long time ago where a uh, a rep was talking about a big deal they were trying to close, and they said, and we did this for. XYZ bank over here, and da, 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 and then the CFO raises his hand and said, we're not a bank. Right? So he's bringing in a whole other industry, and, and, and the CFO's yeah. like, well, we're not a bank, so why are you telling me about a bank? I could give a rat's ass, right? So I, I love yeah. this. Good folks, really let that sink in. So what? Who gives a shit? Why does it matter to the customer? Empathy is critical. I like where you're yeah. in there. So, you look, I think our boy, uh, Kian, nailed it. Uh, this was a really informative show. Keeky you wanna add anything you wanna you wanna say anything? anybody punch in with any questions on the on the Twitters or anything?
1: Um, I've been listening. I did not see any immediate questions, but I'm gonna um, open that keep that an open-ended question and pass on anything we get from YouTube to you, Kean, so you can add that to your win last sure. review. That's
0: <laughs> great. Thank you, Keek. Um Kian, thank you very much. Folks, listen. Drop questions into YouTube. If you are not following us on iTunes, follow us on iTunes. Our iTunes subscriber is just blowing up. I can't believe how fast it's going. Um, and I, the reason I can't believe it's going so fast is no one ever comments or rates us. But every time I go, I know tears down the up, But every time we go, look, we've grown twenty percent. So salespeople are odd. But we're odd ducks. We just we don't engage too much. But boy, do we suck up the content. So thank you, folks, for listening. But do please leave us content. I mean, comments here, at YouTube. Give us a review on iTunes. I don't care if it sucks. Just like, hey, post review like this. I don't care if it sucks or it's good. Just tell me what you think, and I'll and i take that. It, I'll take that to heart. Um, Kiki, do we know who comes up next? Can we announce our next guest?
1: Yes, we sure do. So um, you have sales machine six sixteen. So we're not doing one. And two oh, yeah. no.
0: okay two Thursdays we're taking a break I'm speaking at sales machine in New York if you want to go to that let me know I'll give you a 35% 35. discount 35% off I'll give that to you you don't want to miss it and look I'm usually the headline because I'm the bomb But truth of the matter is this one is bigger than me it's Gary Vaynerchuk, Seth Godin, Ariana Huffington uh, Simon Sinek of, of um, uh, Y so guys this is going to be a huge show so you want to go you've got two weeks Hit me up personally. I get you 35% off. So I'm not here two weeks from today. But after that, who do we have?
1: After that, we have Miss Barbara Weaver Smith, and she's going to talk to us on June 30th, 11 a.m. Mountain, 1 p.m. Eastern, to talk whale hunting with global accounts for critical sales strategies to win global customers.
0: Yes, folks, whale hunting—the big, big deals. Uh, Kian, do you know Barbara Weaver Smith?
2: I don't, but I certainly know uh, about whale hunting, and I'm pretty keen to read her book.
0: Yes, yeah, so you should reach out to her. I'll do an intro if you need that. Or you just say, hit the Twitter and say, Keenan says I need to talk to her. I promise she'll get back to you. Um, Perfect. Great lady, smart as heck. So here's the book, folks, right here. Those of you can see it, those on iTunes, sorry, go to YouTube and watch it. You can see that. So I'm excited to have her. Barbara Weaver-Smith, Whale Hunting with Global Accounts. It's a global world, so you don't want to miss this. Those of you who sell really big stuff in or want to uh, sell really big stuff. And just to have a little fun with this in closing, I wonder how long, and I'm a liberal by the way, but I wonder how long we're going to be able to say elephant hunting and whale hunting before people don't like that because it it's references killing animals and it just doesn't fit in the business world anymore. I'm really curious how long. We should put an over-under, one year, three years, five years. What do you think, Ian?
2: Uh, well, I, I think we definitely shouldn't talk about gorilla hunting for the next couple of weeks because that would be <laughs> too to, close to, to the bar.
0: Right, okay, there you go. So the 800-pound gorilla thing might be gone forever now, right? <laughs> forever.
2: I think it's gone. Ah, yeah. oh, that's, that's good. That's good,
0: that's good. All right, everybody, thank you so much, Keenan. Again, I really enjoyed it, my man. Australia. Australia's on my list. It's only one of two continents I've never been to, Antarctica and Australia. So i got to get out there, and I'll see you when I do I know.
2: think we might get you down here in 2017, Keenan.
0: I would love it. I would absolutely love it. So Kiki, thank you. Kian, I love the name. If I didn't have all my kids, I'd probably name one of my kids Kian. I freaking love it. You're the man, baby. Thank you very much. Until next time, peace. I'm out.